I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. The summer solstice has marked the first day of astronomical summer. The sun has reached its highest point in the sky and for us here in the northern hemisphere we've just experienced our longest day. There's more heat and harvesting to come but before we skip ahead let's celebrate a few landmarks from June. We'll be talking to Dr Andy Salisbury, Principal Entomologist at the RHS, to celebrate the recent National Insect Week. He'll be informing us all about a small but mighty ecosystem engineer, the ant. And we're collaborating with fellow podcaster Ellie Mitchell from the Wildlife Garden podcast, who'll be sharing how to turn your plot into a haven for beneficial bugs and beetles. And of course, June brings us Pride Month. So we're also headed to an inner-city community garden to celebrate with Claire Battellino from Hackney's Rainbow Grow. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS, with me, Gareth Richards. Dalston Junction, a major East London interchange filled with the noise of commuters, construction and music pouring out of restaurants and bars. It's not exactly where you'd expect to find a community garden. But tucked away from the throngs of people is Rainbow Grow, an LGBTQI centred community gardening initiative. Here we met Claire Battellino for a tour of their little haven. When Rainbow Grow first started out, we got lots and lots of publicity, especially within Hackney, from you know members of the local government, let's say, including the mayor. And at one gig he said oh and of course now we have in Hackney you know this amazing gardening group called Rainbow Grow which is a multi-generational group everybody was clapping and loving it and I went home and I thought hold on a minute multi-generational that means I'm the older generation (laughs) because at that time I was one of the few older members of the group and most of the group was sort of you know 30 year olds and whatever who live in the blocks of flats around here don't have any green space to call their own and it was really funny it was hard to believe that I'm not that 30 year old anymore and now I'm going to give you a tour of the garden in the heart of Hackney's most urban gritty bit, Dalston Junction. Here are some old beds that were built as part of a community project and as we walk down in the centre is a plum tree and that has really shut up in the last year so it shades a fair amount of the garden which does mean we've changed a little bit of how we see the garden. This whole bit was in full sun so now we're looking to plant maybe a bit more for shade. It's a yellow plum tree. We've been here what four years now and the first four years there were hardly any plums. I think last year there were about maybe five or six plums and this year 
this loads. Gardening is about making mistakes. Learning to garden is about making mistakes. And what some people say is not necessarily going to be right for every gardener. I've read so much and heard so much and gone to courses and lectures about don't ever dig. Well, had you arrived in this garden five years ago, you wouldn't have believed what we've done. And we couldn't have done that without digging out builder's rubble, glass, dangerous bit of metal. We found all sorts of things. And that had to come out before we could enrich the soil. It says, you know, um, leave 12 inches between rows of whatever, and I just go, 12 inches? That's more than I've got for this crop, you know. We've had corn growing in this garden, like, as tall as I am, and you would think, oh, you're not supposed to have, you know, four ears of corn or four corn plants or six corn plants in such a small space. Well, you can do it. Often the LGBTQI community is considered the diversity, but actually there's so much diversity within the community and there are parts of the community that maybe don't normally mix. When would you get sort of, you know, 60 plus year old lesbians going to heaven? We may have gone to the clubs many years ago, but we're more likely at home watching Netflix but if you're gardening, you're gardening alongside some really lovely younger men, younger women, whatever, all sorts of people. And so it is a sense of community and it's very diverse within that community. Gardens and gardening and, you know, being able to dig provide an important release and also just time. We've had members of the group who actually just come in and say, I've had a really stressful day, can I weed? Now, nobody really likes weeding, but if you've had a really stressful day, you just want something mindless to do. If I find, I don't know about other people, that I just run things through my mind. And when I was still teaching, I would have a really noisy, crazy day. And just to come into the garden afterwards and just quietly do something that's physical and that's good and is productive is a really, really important thing. I'm not sure if it's because of the weather, the sunlight, the pattern of the weather or what it is, but this year has been amazing for berries. We have had so many blueberries. Now, blueberries are something that are not that commonly grown in this country, I believe. And the first time I saw blueberries growing in the wild, they were those low plants. And believe it or not, I was in Canada at the time and they were being eaten by grizzly bears but these are upright ones and the one thing I learned about them to start with was that they needed ericaceous soil so they're into nice sized pots and full of ericaceous soil which we top up every couple of years and they've got the most delicate bell-like white flowers and they're just a joy to watch the flower forms and then eventually it starts forming into the berry and then all this magic happens and you've got these amazing blueberries. And I'm going to try one of these that I've just picked. Mm. Slightly tart, because it's probably an early one, but better than anything you can buy in the store. And don't worry if they don't look like the ones in the store. If they're smaller, this is what blueberries used to look like. I look at blueberries now in the shop and I say, 
oh my God, the blueberries on steroids. They're so huge. And you just think, no. And that's another thing I think that home gardeners and community gardeners have to realize is that you're not going to have the level of perfection you see in a supermarket. And that perfection that you're seeing actually signifies a lot of waste. That slightly squashed strawberry, or dare I say half eaten, I make into jam. The one thing home gardener or community gardener should watch out for is letting your blueberries dry out, especially if you've got them in a pot to save space elsewhere or because you only have a balcony, they're great for balconies, is to make sure that they don't get dry because you can see this coloring on the end slightly brown and that's been damaged by not having enough water. We had our first straight member who joined a couple of years ago and she was really like, oh, I don't know what my sexuality is. It could change in the future, but could I join the group? You know, this is perfect for me. I, she'd come to a couple of courses we'd run. She'd come to some social events and just felt really at home with us. So we were like, yeah, of course. And there's lots of talk about safe spaces for people, but at Rainbow Grow, don't tell anybody, but we are also a safe space for straight people. So my top tip for the home grower or the community gardener in a very small place like this is basically read the rules, digest the rules, understand the rules, and then break them if you want to. And if you're around Dalston or just visiting, if you live here, do, yeah, look for us. Come on down and join us. We'd be happy to have you. Anybody's welcome to join us. You don't have to become a member before you garden. You just have to turn up with sensible shoes. Thanks, Claire. If you're interested in Rainbow Grow, find them on Facebook. I really agree with Claire that we should break some of the gardening rules. You know, gardening advice, it really is just guidance and it's about finding what works for you and what works in your garden. Plants don't always play by the rules. There's a great example here close to me. We've got lots of roundabouts here in Peterborough, it's a bit famous for them, and quite a few of them are planted with Japanese maples and these really aren't the ideal conditions. The conventional law is that Japanese maples want a little bit of shade, a little bit of shelter, some nice moist soil, and yet here they are thriving on these dry, sun-baked, windy roundabouts. It just goes to show that kind of rules are there to be broken. I think that community initiatives like Rainbow Grow are really, really important. Not everyone has their own outdoor space. Not everyone feels empowered to grow by themselves. I think it's really good to kind of get together and grow together and learn from experience. And I love that gardens and gardening have always been something of a safe space for people across the spectrum of gender and sexual diversity to find both solace and companionship and community. Horticulture has been a place for self-expression and sometimes even independently earning a living outside of kind of traditional family gender roles as we saw in a recent podcast. That goes from Edwardian women to horticulturists of today. And this really reiterates how important initiatives like Rainbow Grow are for connecting and empowering people. Now, trading in the smoggy streets of London for the fresh air of Wisley, where we're talking to Dr Andy Salisbury in the aftermath of National Insect Week. He's here to tell the tale of a strong but contentious little creature that's been crawling around since the time of the dinosaurs, the ant. 
plants first started to appear in the fossil record about 140, 150 million years ago. That's about the same time that dinosaurs were at their peak. But there weren't that many ants around at the time. It's thought not about that many species. They really blossomed when dinosaurs went extinct in what's known as a paleogene about 60, 70 million years ago. That's when ants really blossomed and bloomed. Flowering plants came along as well, which is when many insect groups sort of spread out and became much more numerous. And to this day, there's something like 15,000 species of ants that can be found around the world. In the fossil record, you can often actually identify ants which look very similar to those that are still around today. Hi, I'm Andy Salisbury. I'm principal entomologist for the RHS. As an entomologist, I find ants absolutely fascinating. Uh, the complex life cycles, the way that such small creatures can be ecosystem engineers, just absolutely amazing creatures. Ants are labelled ecosystem engineers, but what does that actually mean? An ecosystem engineer is basically something that alters the habitat around it and is a vital part of the habitat. Just need to look at the sheer numbers of ants, first of all, to realise why they are ecosystem engineers. It is estimated that for every single person on the planet, there's eight to nine billion of us these days, there are a million ants, just their sheer numbers. And they actually move an awful lot of soil. A great deal of the species out there live in the soil. They're moving soil around. All of the species in the UK are largely predatory. So they do eat an awful lot of other insects and can keep certain things in check. So they'll eat caterpillars, they'll eat other insects in the soil, so they can reduce things which eat plants. The yellow meadow ant, for example, in the UK produces these mounds which can affect uh, ecosystems. You go to the tropics and you've got leafcutter ants which actually take leaves back to their nest to grow fungus. And they can strip entire trees and change the entire ecology of a forest by making sure the trees that survive are the trees they need for their leaves. Coming back to the gardens in the UK, the other thing ants will eat is sugary liquids. One of their favourite sugary liquids are the honeydew produced by sap-sucking insects such as greenfly, blackfly, other aphids and scale insects. And what they will do is they will actually farm these insects, they'll move them around, they'll protect them from predators like any good farmer will do. So they'll actually remove ladybird larvae and ladybirds and lacewing larvae, eat them if they can, and protect their precious aphids from these predators so they can feed on the honeydew. And we may also know that some aphids do produce wings and fly off. Ants have been known to chop the wings off so they can't fly away. So ants are, are massive ecosystem engineers and they do change the environment around them to suit their own food sources and their own needs. Let's talk about ants in the home garden. Home gardeners find ants a bit of a mixed blessing. You think a lot of gardeners just see an ant colony and they automatically see it, it, it is a problem. And Admittedly, you know, you get an ant colony or an ant nest in a, in a pot or a container and all that soil disturbance may affect the roots of the plant. They're not actually feeding on the plant itself, but they, they can cause disturbance there. Simple solution is, is repot the plant. The other thing, of course, they do is farming aphids and other sap-sucking insects. They can reduce predation of greenfly and other aphids and scale insects. So you can end up with aphid problems, which are a bit worse than you might expect. But overall in the garden, you have to balance that against the good that they can do and, and the other things they do, which is they do eat lots of other insects. So they can eat lots of things like caterpillars and other insects which may otherwise damage our plant and they can be part of the balance. It's one of those insects, if we can tolerate them, 
please do. I mean, they are fascinating creatures and they do have a role in a garden ecosystem. And let's talk about ants sort of in the wider countryside in our natural and semi-natural habitats. Outside of the garden, I mean, there are in the UK about 50 odd species of ant and they range from those which nest in rotting woods and climb up trees to those such as the yellow meadow ant which form mounds and actually form a habitat which is quite characteristic of itself. So they are important to UK habitats and wildlife. Of course, they are food for a lot of other creatures. Things like the green woodpecker is almost a specialist feeder on it. And there are also some behaviours of birds which are quite interesting. They will land near ant nests and sort of bathe in the ants. And it's thought that might be helping them clean their wings. They are incredibly important for our native and semi-natural habitats. We've just had Insect Week, an international event where we try and celebrate insects around the world, led by the Royal Entomological Society. We had some great events at Wisley where I got to talk about brilliant beetles and our other entomologists talk about incredible insects. We had events where people could try and work out what pollinators were, make their own antennae. Fantastic. And we'll be doing this hopefully every year. And of course, we don't have to just celebrating insects during one week we should be celebrating insects and other invertebrates throughout the year so if you see an ant or when it comes to it any other sort of one of these small creatures out there please don't stamp on it they are vital to the way we live and a wonderful part of the natural world I wasn't about to stamp on any ants, but I can sometimes take these miraculous little workers for granted. I've had ant infestations on the allotment. I quite often discover them when I'm digging in my greenhouse borders because they really appreciate dry, warm areas. I mean, it's not a standard method of control, but sometimes if I find an ant's nest in my greenhouse, I'll scoop it up with a trowel and feed the eggs to my chickens. They go absolutely nuts for them. Andy's mentioned how ants will help keep certain pest numbers down, but it's, it's quite difficult to quantify, isn't it? But it's really good to hear that they're just part of the bigger picture. And so I really think we shouldn't reach straight for the spray gun to kill them. As Joni Mitchell said in Big Yellow Taxi, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Speaking with Dr Andy earlier really reminded me about the fundamental role insects play in holding up our entire ecosystem. So how can we turn our gardens into havens for beneficial bugs and beetles? That's exactly what we asked Ellie Mitchell from the Wildlife Garden Podcast. My name's Ellie and I'm co-presenter of the Wildlife Garden Podcast with my partner Ben. And by day, we're also organic wildlife gardeners. We garden professionally around Nottingham and we also have our own small rented garden, which we proudly have made as wildlife friendly as possible and it's an absolute joy to sit out there and hear the buzzing of all sorts of insects. As gardeners, we often talk about pests and beneficial insects, but I find that absolutely everything is beneficial for something else. So ants sit into that wider world where if we didn't have them, then we wouldn't have those fantastic birds that come down and feed on them. So they're just part of the bigger picture really and not something that we need to eradicate anytime soon. Today, we're going to be talking all about how you can make a wildlife haven in your back garden. And by that, we don't just mean the cute things that might visit. We also mean the insects and invertebrates. 
I have to say I have a very big soft spot for the cockchafer, which is not necessarily a gardener's friend because of their habit of the larva eating plant roots. But who can resist such a beautiful beetle when they emerge in May? They're known as Maybugs. They sound like helicopters flying through the air. They're just magic. And to me, they always look like they've got a story to tell. If you look them in the eye, they've got these wonderful feathery antennae and they just look like the friendliest things in the world. The first thing that we encourage all of our clients to do and do in our own garden is to make sure that we accept dying and dead plant material. Because again, as gardeners, we are prone to tidy these things up. But actually, it's all part of the bigger picture, not only for the detritivores that live and actually need that dying plant material to eat and continue their life cycle. But in terms of leaf litter, it is an absolute blanket for all sorts of overwintering insects and invertebrates. For example, ladybirds, every time you clear away every leaf that drops into your garden, you might unwittingly be also clearing away these really beneficial, wonderful insects that will be doing lots next year to help control your aphid population. In our own garden, we actually have lots of nooks and crannies which wouldn't otherwise be used, and we've stuffed them full of bits of log and their lovely dry areas where we know we get absolutely masses of spiders. And again, spiders are there to control the bigger population of flies that might come to our garden and all sorts of invertebrates that they also eat. And it's just all about creating this huge web of life and not overthinking it either. Make it complex, but don't overthink what you're doing. And if mentioning spiders has made anyone listening shudder, then please don't be afraid. These things are already in your garden. And I don't mean to make you more scared, but they're often inhabiting areas that we don't necessarily need to be all the time. So as I said, in our garden, we've got these nooks and crannies, which we don't need to go there. So we let them be for the, the spiders that currently live there. Another fantastic tip for inviting invertebrates into your garden is to keep some grass long. And we all know about no mow may, and there's an increasing movement to keep some part of that area of long grass long for the rest of the year. And grass is an absolutely fantastic habitat for all sorts of things that want to hide out in it. Not only the obvious things like grasshoppers and crickets, but things like ground beetles and rove beetles, which are really fantastic predators of the dreaded slug and snail, uh, particularly at their egg stage. That's where they like to hang out. So if you have done no mow may, then please try and leave an area where you don't then cut it in June. And if possible, keep it long right the way through to the end of summer as well. For those of you that need a shorter lawn for things like kids or dogs playing on it, that's also absolutely fine. But maybe think about mowing it slightly less frequently, because then within that lawn, you can also have low flowering things like daisies and, and the white clover and self-heal, all of which are really fantastic for various pollinators that want to come and feed on them. So, yeah, keep an area of long grass. It's an absolutely wonderful thing. Another essential thing in any wildlife garden, and this goes without saying, is to create a water source. And obviously there's a lot of pros for having a pond in your garden because you can make it look beautiful for you as well. But if you don't have room for a pond, like we don't here actually in our small rented garden, then just having something as simple as a bee drinker on your table or somewhere in the garden is absolutely fantastic and we basically just have a tray of water with gravel in it so that all the small invertebrates and flies and things can come and land on it and drink safely 
In fact, yesterday on our own bee drinker, we had an Ancestroceros wasp come and take a drink, and it was just magic to see. And the final thing that absolutely all of us gardeners can do, I feel like everyone will agree with this one, it's to plant more plants. Who doesn't want to plant more plants? And I don't just mean quantity, I actually mean the diversity of plant as well. Because one sure thing about putting in as many different types of plants as possible is that you will attract as many different invertebrates as possible. And that's down to things like flower shape. We all know about the different lengths of bees' tongues. So having some flowers that are more like a tube for the long-tongued bees to reach the nectar, but then having more accessible flowers like cow parsley and the other embellifers to enable things like hoverflies to come and dab for the nectar and pollen. We are big fans of cramming in plants in every possible place in our own garden and indeed most of our clients and I don't think anyone needs any permission to do that in their own garden if they're listening to this podcast. But if you are, this is me officially giving you permission to go mad. <laughs> if you do all of those things, then my instruction is basically to sit back uh, with a cup of tea or a glass of wine and listen and look out at the amazing benefit it can have for the invertebrates in your garden. We enjoy sitting in our garden. We have butterflies flying by. We have moths at night, some of them as big as my fist seemingly. We have bees coming and feeding from the flowers that we put in. We have spiders predating on all sorts of critters and I wouldn't change it for the world. Thanks, Ellie. To hear more handy tips from Ellie and her partner, Ben, check out the Wildlife Garden podcast. It really adds that amazing kind of unpredictable element. And to me, it kind of absolutely magnifies the joy of plants to see wildlife and insects enjoying them too. I always put water into every garden I've worked in, every garden I've designed and my own garden too. It's kind of the magic ingredient in wildlife gardening. So when people say a bee drinker, what they mean is any kind of small container that's half filled with water and half filled with pebbles. So you spread the pebbles out, so they're poking out, so there's plenty of places for the bees to land. Bees and other pollinating insects, let's not forget those. There's plenty of places for them to land and drink, and they're safe from predators and things as well because it's just quite a small place, so there's nothing to jump out and munch them. So we don't all need to turn our back gardens and allotment into wildlife meadows, but doing any of these small steps can help our ecosystem engineers. And who doesn't want that, eh? That's about it for today. This is one of the most beautiful times of year in the garden. I absolutely love the fact that so much is bursting into bloom and the allotment is just laden with produce. One thing I particularly enjoy, it's always a kind of a birthday treat for me, is the raspberries and they always peak around this time. And at the moment, I've got raspberries of all colors on the allotment from golden apricot to red and purple and each has its own special taste. And they remind us that diversity is beautiful. So, from me, Gareth Richards, happy Pride Month, and see you in July. I'm walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. 
It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.